pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that there are 10,000 reasons to worship you tonight. And every day, in and out of this building, in and out of this service, whether we're here hearing about you or whether we're out in the world seemingly distant from you, wherever the case may be, there are always 10,000 reasons to worship you. Lead us to see that tonight by the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing our series in uh, Ecclesiastes tonight. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, just by way of review, you know that the book of Ecclesiastes is really a man's search, a very wise man's search, a, in fact, a king's search for meaning in life. Uh, and what we'll see throughout the book is he sort of uh, sounds like the first existentialist philosopher, even though it was written some 25, 2700 years ago or thereabouts, because no matter where he looks for meaning and significance in the world, uh, it seems to be thwarted at times. And so tonight we're going to be looking at a very specific way, his sort of first venture he records for us as he looks for meaning. You can follow along on the screen. It reads like this, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and women and many concubines and the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. End of reading. Well, I don't know about you, but I do not like tests. I actually don't think I've met anybody that says, Ooh, oh boy, a test. 
I think one of the hardest tests I ever went through, I was about, well, I think I was actually 16 in California, you get your driver's license when you were 16, maybe I was 17, I'm not sure, but, uh, and I had to take my driver's test to get my driving license, my driver's license. And the only thing that my parents had for me to drive for my driving test was a Mazda 323 stick shift. Now taking a driver's test in an automatic is, you know, scary enough. But taking it in a stick shift, I assure you, if you haven't done it, is scarier. Because there is no doubt you will be on a hill, and there is every chance in the world that you just might stall that thing. And if you stall that thing, you're done. And I think at the time in California, you had to wait a number of months until you could go back to take your test again. So I mean, this is a big deal. This is all of my life. This determines whether I am actually going to be able to impress a lady or not at that time. I mean, everything hinges on that when you're 16 or 17 years old. And so I don't like tests. I did pass, thank God. I did, I didn't stop it. Uh, and I got to drive that sweet Mazda 323 around, which turns out didn't impress the ladies. <laughs> Anyway, but, um, but the point is, is that we all go through tests in life, and then sometimes we are the ones doing the testing. Sometimes we're the ones doing the testing, whether it be, you know, testing out a job that we're possibly considering taking, or testing out a school that we're possibly considering going to. There's a number of ways that we test things in life. And the word that, that our author, the preacher, that's what his name is in this book, the word he uses to describe what he's going to do is he says, I decided to test pleasure. I decided to test that lie to see if it would bring meaning. In other words, this is a form of, of early hedonism. If you're familiar with the philosophy, it really was a philosophy in the ancient Greek world. Hedonism basically said the point of life is to have as much pleasure as possible while limiting as much pain as possible. Doesn't sound all that different from modern Western society. And so he goes after this, the preacher does. He's going to pursue pleasure. He's going to test it, see what it has to offer. And what he's going to find out first is that there is a goodness to pleasure. There's clearly a sense from the preacher of Ecclesiastes that pleasure can be good. Indeed, the rest of the Bible testifies to this reality, too. Contrary to the ancient Gnostics that said that anything that was sensually pleasurable was just uh, nonsense or could be seen as evil, material, uh, anything that was, that was material, sat materially satisfying could be downplayed. It wasn't significant. Um, that The Bible, in fact, says, no, no, no. The senses matter, and material matters, and there are such a thing, there is such a thing as having really good kinds of pleasure. And so the, the preacher recounts for us all the pleasures he decides to test out. Verse 2, laughter. Verse 3, alcohol. Verse 4, art. Verses 5 and 6, the beauty and cultivation of nature. Verse 7 and 8, money and possessions. Verse 8, entertainment. Verse 8 again, sex. Verse 9, power. And verse 11, work. Quite a few things he seeks out, quite a few pleasures. 
And it turns out that nothing really changes all that much throughout history because as you saw from that list, the same thing that he pursued for pleasure are in fact often the same things that we pursue for pleasure. And there can be goodness to them. Let's go on down the list briefly. Laughter. Is there anything better than having like a gigantic, I mean, just gut-busting laugh with a good friend? I mean, it's, I'm telling you, there's nothing, it's, I have pictures of me and my best friend, Jeff, uh, getting together about a year ago. Somebody snapped a picture. When we get together, all we do is make each other laugh, like hysterically. And there's a picture of us both with our mouths wide open, tears in our eyes, laughing hysterically. I mean, and, and I'll tell you, that the only thing that might be better than sharing a good laugh with somebody is when you can actually make a room laugh really hard. I mean, it, that's, it's a great feeling. So there's goodness to that. There's goodness to that. What about alcohol? Some would say, inherently bad. Not the Bible. Not the Bible. The Bible says, no, no, no. Uh, there can be a good use to alcohol. I mean, listen, a nice cold beer on a hot day like this can be great in moderation. What about art? Being able to make something that you can call your own creation can be an incredibly powerful and impactful moment in your life. I can still remember the moment when I first got together with my band and we created an actual song. I was a drummer in a band back in the day and I remember the first time it just sort of gelled and came together and this feeling like, we're gonna do it. We're going to conquer the entire world. We're amazing. Turns out we were not at all. We were not at all. But it felt like that at the moment, like this incredible moment where we were experiencing just a little taste of what it might be like to be God as a creator. In nature, I've had some of the greatest moments in my life in nature. In the middle of the forest of Yosemite or Yellowstone or hiking in Glacier National Park in Montana. I've done all those things and I've had breathtaking moments of awe in nature. Specifically in this passage, when the preacher talks about nature, there's actually a little insight here that commentators will say he is trying to reference. You know, he, he references himself as a king throughout the book. So that we're pretty sure, I mean, many commentators think that this is King Solomon writing. We're not certain about that. That's why I just refer to him as the preacher. But either way, one of the things he mentions, he says, I made gardens. I cultivated gardens. And what you might not know from the ancient world is that a king, one of his ways of showing power was not just to conquer nations and to be able to be a great warrior, but it was also to be able to conquer land and cultivate it and make a garden. And the point of it was, it, it was supposed to be sort of a recapturing of the initial first perfect garden of Eden. So he says, I, I found great delight in gardening. Now, I have not found that delight yet. I'll just tell you, uh, I'm not good at it. But I'm sure it's really enjoyable for you green thumbs out there. But I have had the pleasure of being in nature and experiencing breathtaking moments. The preacher says he has experienced pleasure in great wealth. 
can't say I've experienced that either. But I do know what it's like to feel like at least I have enough money for what I needed in the moment. The sense of security that comes with that. There's entertainment. This city offers so much entertainment. Never-ending entertainment constantly. Midtown bursts with musicals and plays and theaters everywhere. If you're, if you're more of a homebody, well, you know, you can watch Netflix and watch Amazon Prime all day long and never end. I've been, I literally binge-watched Norm MacDonald's new show the last two days. I watched all of them. I did. No shame. He mentioned sex. Sex can be wonderful. It's a gift. The intimacy one can have with another human being is unparalleled compared to the sexual act. It's amazing. And then there's power that he talks about, which when wielded wisely can be used for such tremendous good and can bring such a great sense of pleasure. And then work which can drive so much of our passions every day. And it can when you accomplish something in your work, you can feel like it really does mean something. There's a great sense of satisfaction when you're able to especially look back at a day's work and say, I'm done, I finished that, I accomplished it. And yet, there is also the abuse of pleasure. Which, because human beings are part of this fallen place, we're prone to all the time. It happens when we make these good things that the author references into God things. And if you think about it, this list is pretty exhaustive for those kinds of things that we can easily idolize. We can make these things into things that we pursue so much that we begin to treat them as something to worship. Remember, Martin Luther says in his large catechism that an idol is not simply an image or a, you know, of a deity or something that people bow down to. That's a very uh, simplistic conception of idolatry. In fact, idolatry is just anything that we place our trust and hope in for life and happiness. So if we go on down the list of pleasures the preacher goes after, you can easily see how these good gifts of creation can be abused. Laughter is great, but joking around all the time, laughing about everything, can mean that you're constantly trying to escape from dealing with reality. There's that proverb, Proverb 4.13, that says, even in laughter the heart may ache. All of us know that. All of us know that feeling. You know, that realization, by the way, that laughter could be abused caused Benedict, the founder of the Benedictine uh, monastery and the, the order of, of monks, I mean, the, sort of the first guy. Uh, Benedict said, uh, he actually said in his rules, quote, we condemn jokes and idle gossip and anything said to make others laugh, end quote. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's way going to the other side of the equation, but what's he referencing there? What's he recognizing? That laughter can be an easy way, if we're not careful, of avoiding hard truths, painful realities. Sure, even if alcohol is a gift, is it abused? Of course. You see it abused all the time, and what has it done? In its wake, it's brought, when it's abused, such devastation. 
The Babylon Bee, the satirical Christian website, picked up on this abuse that so easily can happen a little while back. The piece was entitled, quote, Local Man's Drinking Problem Still Successfully Disguised as Craft Beer Hobby. End quote. Here's the beginning of the story. Local man Kevin Maxwell explained that while he drinks nearly every day and is technically probably an alcoholic, in his church he is playfully known as a beer snob. In fact, one of the many places he enjoys imbibing is at a local bar during regular get-togethers with fellow church members, during which they drink expensive, high-alcohol content beer while discussing a variety of topics like theology, sports, politics, and expensive, high-alcohol content beer. Quote, it's really something. If I were drinking Natty Ice or 5 o'clock vodka like I drink microbrews, my pastor would probably be staging an intervention. But because I call myself a, quote, beer enthusiast and I drink Imperial IPAs and vanilla stouts, he's texting me for beer recommendations. End quote. The pursuit of great art, the power of nature and entertainment can be wonderful. But of course... We can idolize our favorite performers. We can love nature so much that we forget who's behind the majestic scenery that we run into. And we can be so, so infatuated with making great art that we can sacrifice everything to it. And I've seen it. One poet said uh, about poetry, after one has abandoned a belief in God, poetry is that essence which takes its place as life's redemption. Having money can be a wonderful, freeing thing, but it can be more easily a false god to which we're enslaved. Thus, Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. This is why every time you see a stock market crash, you do hear about people jumping off of bridges and jumping out of windows and ending their lives who work on Wall Street. Sex is a wonderful gift in the context of marriage, but if not harnessed, and controlled, you run into the exact abuses being chronicled all over the place by the Me Too movement. That doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, that didn't just happen. This is what takes place when there's not, when it's used improperly. It can lead to porn addiction, and it can lead to a complete lack of intimacy. And if you doubt that, just especially look at the testimonies of young men that have grown up in the first generation of having porn constantly on their phone in front of their face, and when they see a real, live, human being, woman in front of them, they're not into it. They're not into it nearly as much as they were in their phone because their phone presents a perfect picture of fake. It's not real. It doesn't exist. But that's what happens with the abuse of the gift. And work can easily lead to workaholism, a place where one seeks to find their ultimate identity and will never satisfy So the preacher says, Yes, these things are good, but when you seek to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in them, it's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity. Now, that picture of chasing after the wind, I just want you to picture that. I mean, you're running, you're running, you're running after 
you're never catching it. You're always grasping after more, never truly satisfied. Because when we let good things become God things, then we're never able to get enough. That's what an idol always does. It over-promises and under-delivers. Everything that you put your hope and meaning in now, whatever it is, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you are pursuing with worship-like passion, I promise you, if it is not the Lord of heaven and earth, it will over-promise as it's doing right now. That's the carrot on the stick. It keeps on dangling it out before you, and it will never satisfy. I, I promise you. I promise. We know this. This isn't me making things up. This is documented fact after fact after fact. If you don't believe me, see what happens to those people like Alexander the Great after he finally conquered everything and finally had all the power. What did we hear he did? sat down and wept because he didn't have anything else to conquer. As a pastor now for 11 years, I've had a number of people tell me, you know, I have an addictive personality. And my first thought is, you mean you have a human personality? Because it's all So if we're honest, each one of us in thought, word, or deed here tonight, as our confession said earlier, has been guilty of indulgence too much. You may be prone to wanting to joke around too much to avoid dealing with the real stuff that's going on deep down in your heart. Some of you may find yourself drinking too much far too often because you just need to not deal with the stress anymore at the end of the day. Perhaps your need to be entertained guides so much of what you do that it overshadows your relationship to God. Everyone has messed up sexually, at least in their thoughts, if not their words and their deeds. And, and who hasn't been greedy at some point? I mean, who hasn't fallen into the trap of putting too much emphasis on money, on work? When I first arrived in the city, this is Two and a half years ago, I went out, and I've taught, told you this many times before, but I would go out to cafes and talk to human beings and, you know, just try and strike a conversation with them. And I remember one guy in particular, I said, if you could narrow down for me what gives you a sense of hope, what would it be? He thought about it for a moment, and he said, I guess, I guess what would finally bring me a sense of contentment is if... I work hard enough and make enough money, then I'll finally be content. So that's my hope. I said, okay. What gives you a sense of hopelessness? And he thought about it for a moment and he went, I guess the realization that no matter how much money I make or no matter how hard I work, I still won't be content. That's the problem. That's the problem we have living in a fallen world. So then what? Well, let me wrap it up. Here's what needs to happen. Our pleasures need to be redeemed. Our priorities need to be set straight. Pleasure is good, but not for ultimate meaning and significance. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the issue. We settle too easily. Instead of settling for the merely temporal pleasures of life, for meaning and significance, the book of Ecclesiastes urges us to go back to the true source of pleasure in life. And to see where and who that is, I want to focus your attention again on the passage from Philippians chapter 3. There, in that passage, Paul is boasting about all the things he's accomplished, all the things that have brought him joy in his life. And yet, in the final analysis, when he looks back at it, he says this. In verse 7 of chapter 3, whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, etc. Do you hear it? Do you hear what he's saying? Paul looks back at all the accomplishment, all the pleasures of his life, and he says, compared to knowing Jesus Christ, the source of all true pleasure, I count it all as rubbish. Now, the word there in Greek is way, way, way stronger than rubbish. Paul wants to make a very forceful point. I won't say the word. I'll just tell you it starts with an S, ends with a T, and in the middle is hit. That's literally the word in Greek he uses in the Bible. No joke. It says all of this stuff that I went after, all of it, it's worth that. It's worth that thing I step over on my way to the train in the morning. It's worth that much. All of the accomplishments I had in comparison to knowing the one who's forgiven my sins, who's declared me righteous, and promise me, promises me eternal pleasures forevermore. I'll close with a brief story about a friend of mine. Uh, years ago, I, I, uh, he had the most money of, I think, most of the people I knew. He had no problem with women. He had an amazing car. Amazing. And in California, that's the thing that matters. Way better than a Mazda 323. Way better. He had all the things. He also had a really expensive drug habit. But it didn't seem for a while to impact him. He was able to snort coke regularly and still get up and go to work every day and make money and he was doing well for a while. And then eventually like wasn't making as much money and cocaine's not as affordable as meth. So he starts doing meth. And through a long series of events, which always happens when we look for these pleasures in other spheres of life, besides the true source of pleasure, he just lost it. And then he met Jesus. When he hit bottom, 
met Jesus. And I can remember, I can remember shortly after he became a Christian, him just saying, I had everything the world has to give, but it's only now that I truly feel satisfied. I had everything the world had to give, but I was never content. But now that I know Jesus, I am. May that be truth for you as well. Let's pray. Father, it is our natural proclivity to run after the pleasures of this life. Again, acknowledging that these are good things you created. When they're used rightly, they can be great. But we abuse them. We use them improperly. We use them addictively. We use them harmfully to ourselves and others. So, Father, forgive us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who gave his body and blood to forgive us of all our sins, as Paul says, so that we might have a righteousness of his, not our own, to stand before you in spirit and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to take an offering. The band is going to uh, perform briefly, and then we will gather to go to the table to receive this righteousness that comes through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus.